Welcome back. Hello there, leading woman in tech. How are you doing? How the devil are you? Is the sun shining where you are? I have a very special episode for you today with the amazing Jordan J- Dangerstalker. Yes, that really is her name. I did ask. Um, we recorded this quite a while ago, so I'm you know, recording the intro after we spoke. But this woman is inspiring. She's not your normal techie. But she has a really interesting story to share with you. And there are a lot of lessons learned, which is why I invited her on the podcast that I think everybody in tech should be learning about how to really need and also about how to make sure that we're focusing on the right things. So there's some real good nuggets in this episode. Without further ado, let me introduce her. Jordan is the founder of DangerCo, a 360 marketing practice offering fractional CMO services. She's based in beautiful Canada. She offers business advisory sessions, branding, and campaign strategies. She's your one-stop shop for marketing. But, you know, to be honest, that's not why I invited her on the show. Jordan is also known as a master of brand development and consumer behavior. She's spent a decade working with SMEs and startups. So if you're in such an organization, she has some nuggets of wisdom for you, including two years as the embedded marketing advisor for Ottawa's Municipal Startup Acceleration Program. That's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> She's also a writer, artist, and a bit of a LinkedIn ranter. So make sure you follow her over on LinkedIn. She has some interesting things to tell you. And I'll make sure that her LinkedIn URL is in the show notes. She has 10 years experience as a counselor as well, on top of running her own business, working with clients who experience trauma and life changes. And I think that really added to the conversation we had. And that really tells you a lot about her people-first approach to Team Nation, which is what I really want you to hear from this episode. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Leading Woman in Tech podcast, where we talk about real leadership and what this means for the world of tech, the techniques, tips, and strategies you can use to become a standout leader. I'm your host, Tony Collis, tech leadership coach, strategist, and coffee lover. And in each episode, I share my best insights designed to make your success not just simple, but inevitable. Whether you're on the way to the C-suite, an emerging leader, or a budding entrepreneur, this is the podcast you need to become a lit-up leader and turn your tech passion into a career you love. I'm pressing record on my software right now too, and um, so I'm just going to welcome you. Uh, one other thing, if at any point you want to backtrack, we'll just leave a little voice note to my editor, Brett. So if you ever hear me say, Brett, just delete that or anything like that, that's why, I'm saying, that's why I'm saying that, okay? All right then. So I think we're ready to go. Feel good about this? All right then. So welcome, Jordan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to be here. Fabulous. Well, let's just get started straight away. Could you share us uh, with us all a little bit about your personal story and career history and how you came to running your own business? Because you've got a very interesting background. Yeah, actually. Um, so I started off as a social service worker. So I was doing counseling with uh, individuals uh, who were underprivileged or in trauma. Um, and in that field, I started doing a lot of communications and marketing work just kind of over time, everyone is all hands on deck at a nonprofit. Uh, And I started to realize that I had really wanted, I mean, I always knew I really wanted to pursue that career path, but it was time to make a move. And so after about a decade in social services, I uh, made the switch over to marketing. 
um, with a special viral project that uh, sort of helped me get recruited. And um, not not long after that, that's when I realized that I was going to um, want to do this as an independent consultant or a business uh, for a lot of different reasons that I'm sure we're going to talk about today. Cool. Well, so yeah, what took you into working more with the tech world? Because uh, I know that you do work with the tech world, but can you share with the audience, like what drove you in that direction? Yeah, well, I had been doing a lot of uh, consulting with businesses um, for a few years when, uh, quite a few years, actually, when um, I was given an opportunity to do some advising with Invest Ottawa, which is Ottawa's economic development sort of agency. And so their job is to help businesses uh, of all types do better in Ottawa. And uh, so when I started there, it was supposed to be a part-time engagement turn into full-time uh, and it really evolved into working with both the uh, more st- standard Main Street businesses as well as the tech startups in their acceleration program. Uh, and so what was great was it was a lot about sort of bringing some of those brick and mortar concepts of marketing uh, over to the tech world where uh, it tended to be kind of forgotten. Uh, people were so excited about their product, they just kind of jump into that before thinking about the rest of the business. And so I brought, I think I think, I think I brought an old kind of old world approach to um, a very new field and it resulted in some really sturdy marketing plans. Can you tell me what you mean by that old world approach? Um, Because I think that's something that the tech industry doesn't really understand sometimes about marketing. Um, Some of the bigger tech industry does because they've got more traditional marketing experts, but a lot of startups don't. So tell tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like this. If you and I wanted to start a coffee shop tomorrow and we just threw up a sign and put some coffee on the counter, we would be out of business in about two days. Uh, So when you're planning um, the opening of a business, uh, more of a traditional business, you have to have a full plan in place. You have to know who's going to show up. You have to research where you're putting your business. Uh, Is there going to be foot traffic? Whatever the case may be, right? Right. Uh, and so what was happening a lot, especially at the time, although I think it's getting a little better now, uh, with a lot of tech startups was it was, hey, I developed the tech equivalent of a really cool coffee bean, and I'm just <laughs> going to put it out there. And it's like, well, where's all the rest of the planning yeah. that goes into it? So, um, you know, one of the things I got to do a lot at Invest Ottawa, which I really enjoyed, um, although I'm sure the people I did it with didn't enjoy it as much, was sort of a almost like a Dragon's Den style um, pitch process that we would put people through where they would have to sort of practice their pitch they were taking to investors. And our job was to poke holes in their presentation. Um, and I was definitely sort of the, the Simon Cowell of that, <laughs> if you will. Um, but uh, I thought it was really important that we that we were candid from the very start with what was wrong. And a lot of the times it was around revenue model and understanding, did you even have an audience for this idea? It may be very cool. Electric dog polishers sound neat, but who needs a shiny dog, right? Yeah, that just gets me so much because my time working in startups and even my time chief business development officer with a startup, I felt always that the thing was lacking was this real awareness. Like They kind of like talk the talk. They're like, yeah, we totally understand who our ideal customer is. And we've spoken to them. But there were so many bits of that recipe missing. And there's no point in creating a great product if you're not talking to the right people about it or they, nobody actually wants it or anything like that. Like you have might have a great idea, but make sure it's an idea that's going to get taken up, especially if it's well changing, which is one of the things I love to make sure that we're all doing. <laughs> 
Anyway, I do want to dig into your business though, and in particular your company culture. But before we get there, tell me a little bit about what you now do, what your company does, how how you got started in running your own business and where you are today with it. Yeah. So our first, well, my first project before I was ever a business at all uh, was a blog that I did called Project Priceless. And it was um, a very simple thing. I was trying to put together a wedding as free of charge as possible. We were willing to borrow or make things or have hand-me-downs. And uh, when I put out the blog, I just did everything I learned to do in nonprofit to spread the word. And in nonprofit, you have to do everything yourself. And so at the time, social media was quite young, because uh, this was about 10 years ago now. And that's exactly how it used to run. I ran on sweat equity, always. Um, there wasn't a lot of ways to even monetize. A lot of channels didn't really even have uh, monetization structures yet. So it was just sweat, blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, and it took off very quickly. And so in the course of 10 months of blogging, we had about 80,000 hits on the blog and about 150 offers of items. So I had my choice of eight wedding dresses and several cakes and, you know, a half a dozen venues. And it got way bigger than I had expected. I was looking for a cake address in a venue and we ended up with a wedding valued around 40 grand. Uh, and, and we had 150 attendees. So um, that took off and was obviously quite large. We were covered in magazines across the world. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was also a really important lesson in, uh, it was a, you know, kind of a trial by fire in terms of social media and digital, digital marketing. So after that, uh, two things happened. I was headhunted for a marketing role pretty quickly. Uh, and I also had a lot of businesses coming forward and saying, how do you leverage digital media uh, digital presence to have impact with the business. And so consulting started out of that. And within a short time, I decided it was something we should brand. And so I started off called Danger Communications and sort of summed it all up to Danger Co. now. Uh, and it's been a really exciting time. It's, it's you know, obviously the last year has been difficult for everyone. And I can't say that it hasn't been hard here either. But I will say it's given us a lot of opportunity to work with a lot of different businesses who maybe were going to be slower to get on track with uh, really embracing marketing, things like the trades, for example. And it's been pretty exciting here, actually. That's really, it's good to hear of a company doing well during COVID. Actually, a lot of people I speak to have done. I think there's been a bit of a, a mix and I mean, partly it depends on which sector um, you're in but it's good to hear that you've done well throughout this last year because it has been hard for many people and um, so that actually brings me to what I really wanted to get you onto the podcast to talk about which is your quite frankly inspirational company culture when you told me about this I had chills about the way you operate um, can you share with the audience like what on earth am I talking about and and more specifically how that has helped during COVID like how is that directly related to the progress that your company has seen during COVID, having this company culture that's, as I put it, people first. Tell us all about it. Well, so Danger Co. was always supposed to be sort of the alternative to an agency experience for all of us who work in it. Um, I really wanted to go into marketing, but I didn't want to end up, uh, I had a brother-in-law who had a very successful agency who ended up selling it. He just, he was, and he said, don't ever go into agency life. And we're similar personalities and similar sort of uh, challenges. So I, I knew that was good advice and I heeded that. But what I needed to do was find a way to still provide an agency type of uh, experience for people without all of the bad parts of it. 
So, you know, some of the things we did was we wanted to keep the overhead really low so we could work with small businesses and startups. And so to do that, uh, we worked primarily on a model of using contractors and they would be a series of other people like myself who wanted to be self-employed or have a business um, who wanted to maintain control of their time and how their workflow works and stuff like that. And that allowed Danger Code to serve different clients with different, the right mix of the different uh, sort of specialists or skill sets. Um, I always think of it like assembling an Avengers team for the right uh, bad guy. And so that way we could do that and everyone was able to maintain their own working style. And so what's actually happened in through 2020 and 2021 is um, we've been really busy, which is amazing. So um, I've actually brought in some people to be sort of long-term contractors or if you will, employees. And so we actually have people here now who are kind of my go-to, who have a wide enough skill set to serve a lot of people. Uh, But it's been exciting for us because um, we've watched the rest of the world kind of catch up with our remote working model and our model of understanding that. um, And I think this is a big part of it is remembering and understanding that people can always walk out the door. And instead of believing that, you know, um, a signed employee contract or a desk somehow uh, makes work happen or makes loyalty happen, uh, that was something that we never believed in at Danger Co. And uh, people are starting to catch on to that now. Yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to dig into a little bit is actually the the model you have with your team. Um, because a lot of people have this negative image of contract, like a contract is something that you're put on as a bad thing. Uh, I've actually been a contractor and I really benefited from it. I pushed the company to allow me to be a contractor rather than an employee for personal reasons. It's what I really wanted at that point. So I'd love you to share like wh- what is the benefit for the employee or in this case, the contractor of that model? Like, And, and why is it not always that bad thing that much of us, many of us have thought it is because of negative experiences we've seen ourselves or in the media? Yeah, I think part of that comes from a false perception of some sort of safety or security that comes with an employment contract. Mm. Um, I can tell you from just being around the workforce long enough now that that's a lot of it's a lot of myth. Uh, so don't you know don't fall for that. If you want to know how tenuous your grasp on your employment is, go talk with an employment lawyer just for fun, and and they'll <laughs> tell you how much that contract doesn't really matter in the end. But what I uh, wanted to do with Danger Co. in terms of contractors was. To be able to grab the right talent for the right job at the right time and not have people sitting around trying to, for example, like let's say we got into a whole lot of animated videos and that was a big seller for us, let's say in 2019 or something, uh, to have a designer sit there doing that day after day and kind of wanting to, you know, throw their iPad out the window. And the way that we've done this, uh, our team can have another job or not. It depends on their situation. And they can uh, work with us on the projects that they're actually good at. And so when we choose uh, to add someone to our little black book, uh, we have really candid discussions around what do you actually like to do? What are you actually good at? What do you not know how to do yet? Is there something you want to try that you haven't got to try before? And then when I have a client come in, depending on their budget, you know, time, money, all that stuff like that, uh, we'll look and say, okay, so this is a good one for this person or, hey, this person has a smaller budget and they're not as time sensitive. So I can run creative direction for this person who wanted to try out motion graphics uh, in a professional setting, for example. And so quite a few of our contractors over the years have been people working in, uh, you know, they have a good gig going, excuse me, at like a startup or or even a a bigger company or with the government a lot here in town. 
who said, like, listen, Jordan, I'm going crazy. I can't do any more PowerPoints for, you know, government departments. Please give me something to do. Uh, and we go, okay, cool. So let's find a project we can put you on. Yeah. Well, you also have a fairly interesting approach to how you work with the individuals. Um, you shared with me, for example, that one of your staff is shielding right now and another member of staff has other concerns. Like, And this is why like, this people first approach is so powerful, I think. Can you share a little bit about like what that means for you as the boss, the CEO of your company and how you interact with these people and how that is difficult, but also beneficial or, or not? <laughs> we have to be honest here, right? Yeah. Um, well, so the whole idea of Danger Co. in the first place was to provide a service to clients that was accessible and transparent, uh, that wasn't about shiny foyers and uh, mysterious out- billable hours. It was about providing good quality, down-to-earth, pragmatic marketing. And I think that that has really informed how we've hired and recruited uh, and then how we've also maintained our, our team. So that same approach of transparency and pragmatism has applied to how we manage our team now. Um, you know, for example, my project coordinator, uh, she is a former executive chef and she was working in a retail setting when COVID hit and she cares for her two very elderly parents and her mom had two strokes in uh, 2020. So she had to leave her job because she couldn't uh, afford the risk of being in a public uh, setting. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't sure what she was going to do. And I reached out. I said, listen, I know your background. I know you're Starbucks trained, for example. It's a big deal. Very good training. And I know that you know how to handle people and projects and uh, inventory and numbers. Uh, So why don't you try being our project coordinator? And she thought I was crazy. I said, trust me, you can do this. Uh, And she's been incredible. She's been awesome. And in fact, she's uh, also now even doing some copywriting with us, uh, which is pretty great as well and having a lot of fun with that. So, um, and she's able to work completely remotely and take care of her family, right? So that's been uh, something I'm very proud of. And I feel very like honored that I've had an opportunity to help someone in that way. And I have another uh, contractor who has uh, some issues with ADHD. And I know, for example, that her workday will go, maybe it'll go, you know, nine to 10, and then it'll take a break and then she'll come back at two and then she'll work. And then maybe if she's better off at midnight and <clears throat> really that's fine with me. All we ever worry about is deadline and making sure that everyone's doing their best work their best way. And that's been really important to me because the whole idea for me, owning my own business for my contractors is to have a place of employment that actually feels good at the end of the day, both the work that we do, the clients we work with, but also how we do our work. I love that. I love that you you basically know that the best thing for your business is to allow your team to show up in the best way for them. And I think so many people lose sight of that when we're in the thick of it. When, as you you know, as the deadlines approach, as you've mentioned, that deadlines are important. Of course, they are, right? As the deadlines approach, a lot of us contract and start micromanaging on on a smaller or bigger level because because we feel we need control because we're worried rather than just trusting that you've built a great team that they know how to do what's best for them. And that when you allow them to do that, because you've deliberately sought out people who are excited to do the work they're doing because of those honest and frank conversations you have right from the get-go, that turns into success for your business. And you don't have to be worried and strangling your team with the way that you show up. And I think so many of us lose that at some point. Have you got any insights into why you're able to just allow this to be rather than, or have you ever felt 
tempted to fall into that mode of like, oh, I need data, I need information. Why are you not on the call all the time? Which many of us do. That's a good question. Um, you know what's funny is I really, I hope, I hope this, uh, I'm going to knock on wood, but what I found is uh, the more that we treat our team like experts on their own work and experts on being themselves, the less there's a problem. I found that when I was working, when I've worked in, because uh, you know, over the years I've embedded with different companies for lengths of time, and I've had teams. And in the companies where we had to follow a nine to five really strictly, or there was expectations around how we do our work or what kind of work environment should be, uh, you know, a good one or a bad one for us, that I actually got way less good work, more people not showing up for meetings, et cetera, et cetera, uh, way more turnover. And uh, as it is, I mean. I don't really have turnover. I mean, it helps that we're working project by project, of course. Uh, I, I won't not acknowledge that part of it, but I can't think of a contractor who I couldn't call up right now who wouldn't jump on a project. And part of it is because I come in honest. I'll be like, this one's low budget, but I think it's going to be really fun. And if you want to try something new, it's a good one. Or this one's high budget, high stakes, high stress, and we're going to have to be right on time. And so we're just honest right from the start. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that openness, honesty, and you mentioned about that transparency you have with your clients and you wanted to build it that way and transferring that over to the transparency and trust that that means that you have with your team. I think the two things go hand in hand. I preach a lot on this podcast about trust. Um, I do actually think it underpins great management, great leadership, great business. But we've got to remember it's both sides. It's both with the customer and with the team. You can't have one or the other because otherwise it, the the one that you're apparently showing trust and being transparent with knows that, that isn't always there. It's subject to removal or debate or whatever. So I love that you lead that way. You mentioned um, that you didn't want the traditional agency life, but your brother warned you away from it. Can you share with us like what that means to you? Like what was that and what is wrong with it such that you've done something different? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a big secret that uh, agency life for the creatives that work in it tends to be a lot, a lot of intensive hours. Um, you know, to run an, uh, an agency, you have to have a lot of, first of all, you have to have a lot of clients. Second of all, they have to be large ticket usually uh, to help cover all the overhead, etc. So for example, if I have a graphic designer who's uh, valued at, I don't know, let's say 80 grand a year. Uh, if I don't have something for that person to do uh, every day of the week, then that person is costing me money. So I have to factor in uh, a buffer into what I charge my clients to make up for that, that the downtime, right, for example. And then the other side of it, my, my job as the head of the agency is to sort of overload the work so that we never have a downtime where we're eating into that buffer zone. So that can be a lot of pressure on staff, on the people who run the agency. And there's also a lot of I mean, the reality is marketing is a little bit like mechanics where most of us don't really know what our mechanic is saying to us. It's kind of wizardry and we kind of have to go on trust and uh, reputation. And a lot of it can be on brand as well. So agencies spend a lot of time and money on their personal brand. And that can mean, you know, like I said, shiny glass foyers and, um, you know, really artsy, cool studios and stuff like that. And that's super fun and great, uh, but it all costs more money, which puts more pressure on us to bring in more clients and our staff to be overworked. So uh, what we wanted to do was create something that was flexible to the needs of the time. There's been times where I have 
uh, all but closed up shop for a year or two at a time to go and do something else. When I was at Invest Ottawa, it was that, in my opinion, it was a conflict of interest to be running uh, advisor sessions of the same sort at the same time. So I closed down that aspect of my business while I was embedded. And then I was able to come back and reopen the shop doors when I was ready. Uh, and I wanted that same flexibility for the people who work for us. So I, like I said, I have people who uh, have, say, a government job and they can say, listen, the next six months are crazy. We're building a new website. I won't be around. And I can say, no problem. I'll send you something when something comes up, right? So it allowed people to have that flexibility and not just for work, but for life as well. Um, you know, especially this year, I think that's really uh, it's been really noticeable, especially for women, um, the amount of pressure we have to manage a lot of ac- aspects of life. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the people who contract with us uh, may have all sorts of stuff going on and, and we're flexible to that. Yeah, you, I love that you touched on there, this whole obsession, and it's not unique to your industry, believe me, um, of like, we have to be overbooked because we need to make sure our staff are fully used and we're worried like there's a cliff edge in three months time when all the current contracts run out but then everybody is always overworking or I mean I've worked places where they they were actually really proud of this fact that they always had more work to do than staff that was something that they proclaimed as like a good thing but they were you know passionate that we shouldn't all work crazy hours although some of us did myself included at times (laughs) Because the flip side of that is you always feel like you're under-delivering and letting people down. And that doesn't feel good. Whatever stage of your career you're at, um, it doesn't actually feel good to knowingly let contracts like not do as well as they should do. But there's this obsession with growth because of this. It's like, well, we always need more money coming in. And then we've got too few people. So we always need to be hiring more. And it just feels this need to grow. And I think more companies need to be okay with we don't have to grow. I know capitalism says that we should all be growing. <laughs> and that's a whole debate for another day. But <laughs> I think we all need to be a bit more okay with like, you know what, this steady state works really well for what I am passionate about doing, what my team is great at delivering. And let's just go with that. So I love that you've built that into your business model. Yeah, we really wanted it to be, uh, and like we say this right on the website, we only work with the select group of clients at a time. Uh, and for for me, like I was raised by my parents were actually both business coaches. So I heard from an early age, you have to decide what your goal is, and then work towards that. But keeping all your other goals in mind, too. So a work life balance is something that I was striving for for a long time. And that's what most of my contractors are looking for as well. And so, you know, so what we'd rather do than overload ourselves and actually burn out our creativity, because that's usually what happens when you're too busy is to allow the breathing room that allows us to have times in the day where maybe you don't have a burning list of tasks, where you can actually look at your clients, uh, you know, let's say your Hootsuite or whatever you're looking at and go, yeah, actually, I have a really good idea today. And let me throw that out there. And then we might get really busy for a while. And I'm not saying I don't pull some crazy hours. But, uh, you know, we do have it structured in such a way that the idea is aces in their places, the people who want to do the kind of work they're doing should be enjoying it. And when we do it that way, when you do have to pull the longer hours, it's not so much of a chore. Yeah. And I think sometimes, I mean, I'm very passionate these days because I've been burned in the past for not working crazy hours. But sometimes I do work longer hours more because I'm just so damn excited. (laughs) And I think that's a very different energy that we can bring to our business and to our work is when we're doing it because we're really excited rather than just purely deadline driven, at which point it feels more draining and exhausting. And 
you know, you take longer to recover. We all have to recover, even if we're really excited, but it does take an awful lot more if we don't want to be doing it. Yeah. And really we wanted to build something like all the marketing we we ever do for a business. um, The goal is to make it something that's sustainable for that business. So if someone, for example, if we're dealing with a startup and they don't even have a marketer yet, we're not going to create a marketing strategy plan and hand it off to them that requires two or three staff. It's just, that's craziness. You're just, you're literally wasting their money. So, um, you know, same idea, like we try and build our business and other people's projects in a way that's sustainable and takes into account people's capacity, a business's capacity, uh, and, you know, being really pragmatic about that. And one of the ways that um, I really embraced that a few years ago now uh, was to start really embracing failure and encouraging my staff not to be afraid to make mistakes. So I actually, uh, sounds like so cheesy when I say it out loud, but I went out and bought a stuffed plush whale and I made him a little podium and he was our fail whale. (laughs) And the fail whale uh, goes to whoever makes the biggest mistake of the week. And so at the end of the week, we talk about who's made a mistake and we figure out which one had the biggest impact or what's the biggest, you know, kind of like, uh-oh moment. And whoever has that moment gets to keep the fail whale for the week. But it's not a negative. It's something where people come over and chat about it uh, because they're like, oh, what did you do? And then they can talk about what went wrong and what we learned from it. Um, and it's truly like the the culture is this is a positive. Getting the whale means yes. that you were trying hard enough to screw up. <laughs> I love that. I always talk about like we really need to redefine failure. There is failure is not a bad thing. I actually don't like the word because it's so ingrained in our society that failure is bad. Because if you want to le- learn and grow, you need to fail. There is no other way about it. You have to try things. If you never fail, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. So I love that. That is something I kind of need to figure out in my team. My team is spread over like 10 or 11 time zones. Um, so it's kind of tricky but um, to like ship a whale. <laughs> I love that idea. That's definitely something I'm going to have to like think about how to bring into to my team's work. That would be amazing. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'd love to find out from you some little nuggets of wisdom. What, especially as your parents are business coaches, that's a cool thing to have. Mine is psychologist, so that explains an awful lot about me. <laughs> Um, what specific skills or behaviors would you advise people to be cultivating to be this style of leader, to build successful teams and companies on terms that work for us as individuals, as the leader, but also for our teams? Like, can you give some little nuggets of wisdom? Well, I think, you know, um, it's it's got to be it's got to be genuine to who you are and who I am is extremely candid. I have a very hard time. Uh, playing politics games or sort of, you know, using fancy words to get something across. (laughs) In writing, I'm pretty good, but uh, not so much on the fly. So I've opted to go for super honest and transparent in my approach to most of my life. And that works really well for my team as well, because I actually, I feel like our team, usually I will explain why we're doing something. And by being transparent, you have to say the why. And that often helps them come up with ideas I wouldn't have had. So if I'm like, we're scratching this whole project because X, Y, and Z. Uh, I might get back, okay, no problem. Or I might get back, what if we tried Z? And it's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. So, um, you know, I think candor and transparency are really big parts of how this works. But it also has to come with brutal and painful humility. (laughs) If you don't have the humility part, that stuff's not going to work. Because um, if you're not being honest with yourself, then you're not going to be truly honest and transparent with your team. And, you know, for better or worse, being a woman in business, you know, you get told pretty quickly what you're not good at. 
uh, sometimes really unfairly. And so actually, I think I probably in my case came from behind the eight ball on that of feeling like I wasn't doing a good enough job and working on my self-esteem and my sense of accomplishment. So I knew honestly and um, truly what I was good at, what I wasn't good at. So then once I was confident on those skills and uh, weaknesses, then I can be open with them with my team. So I'll tell them like, if you don't remind me about that, I'm going to forget it because I don't have my notepad and that's a big mistake. And they're like, okay, cool. It's not, you know, so at no point do they come back and say, did you finish that for me? I don't have to throw an excuse out there. I can be like, I screwed up. I screwed up guys. (laughs) And so they can do the same return. And the sooner we get to the part where someone says, I screwed up, the sooner we can find a solution. Yeah, I love that you share that too. Um, And it fits really well because I'll see my audience is primarily women in tech. And we spend an awful lot of our lives experiencing what you just described in that we're shut down a lot. We're told consciously, unconsciously, explicitly or implicitly that we're stupid, that we're less capable, all these things. And so I've worked with a lot of women who finally found some confidence. Sometimes it's only in certain areas. And they haven't figured out how to bring in humility with the confidence. And you need both. To be truly confident, you need to be able to demonstrate your humility. But I think so many of us have been shut down for so much of our lives. It's a really hard thing to bring back in. It isn't just about feeling confident. It is about realizing your limits realistically rather than the imposterism kicking in and saying, oh, but you're stupid or oh, but you can't possibly... It's having that realistic level of self-awareness piece that goes hand in hand. And I love that it sounds like you've nailed that. Although I always think we're all works in progress, right? (laughs) Every day is different. Um, One thing that was a big realization for me, and this was a while ago now, but it's uh, really helped me out is to know that I'm not the only one who sometimes feels like she's faking until she makes it. That the way that men talk is often from a place of poor self-esteem or, you know, fear that they're not good enough either, especially in tech. There's a lot of posturing. And so, you know, I recognize that that is there. And there's times where you might need to posture as a woman, uh, by all means. And like, for example, I've had people say, why do you have such a long about section on LinkedIn? It's because I know that because of my gender, I need to remind people every single day of all of my expertise. There's no day where someone just says, oh, I just know she's an expert. No, they need to be reminded. (laughs) At one point, I actually I have a 40 under 40 award, which is a big deal around here. And it's very recognizable. And at one point, I actually brought it into my office to see if it would change the tone of meetings I was having. And it did. The fact that it was on my desk, um, I could see when people would acknowledge it with their eyes. And some of the pushback actually receded um, in the place that I was working. So, um, you know, these things are real and it's okay to um, pull out the peacock feathers sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to my team, my approach has been, you know, within these uh, vir- virtual four walls. Now, uh, we are going to be honest with each other and open and clear. And when we're out of here, we edify each other and we talk confidently. But we can be vulnerable with each other because we're going to get to a better result. Yeah. I, by the way, I totally second your long about section on LinkedIn. I, with all the people I work <laughs> with, I have a LinkedIn kit as well. And um, actually, your LinkedIn about section is your number one place to get all your hits and stuff. So, totally second that. But I also love that you mentioned that that award changed the tone in the room. It took me a good four years to own that I won a leadership award. It's actually only in the last eight months I've been including it in my bio. And suddenly people take me more seriously. Nothing else has changed. And to me, I'm like, well, the leadership award is just, it's just a thing. It doesn't mean anything. 
But suddenly that external stamp of approval says, take this person more seriously, take this woman more seriously. Um, it's a it's a pity that we need it because I know that I got that award possibly from a place of privilege. I am a white woman. <laughs> it really helps, right? Rightly, it, wrongly, unfortunately, but it, I wish that it didn't make any difference. But if you do have something like that, if you're listening to this, I really want you to own it because you know what, whoever you are, you worked hard to get there. You might not have worked as hard as somebody else, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't own it. What you should be doing is using your privilege if you have some to lift somebody else up and give them that choice. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I'm, as you can tell, I'm just, this one is very important to me. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. at the end of each episode, I love to give listeners a simple mindset tip to help them adjust how they act or think on the topic of today's podcast. So I'd love for you to offer one highly actionable mindset shift that listeners can make to help them with their team leadership or setting up a business. So I've been actually writing um, an executive detox all this year. So every year, I'm sorry, rather every week, I write um, a new it's a, just a newsletter format. It's completely free. There's no sales pitch in it. Anyone can sign up. Uh, you don't have to be an executive, but you know, in an executive mindset would be the right people to uh, to be reading it. And um, where I started off the year and where I'll probably end off the year, because my goal is to write something all every week, all, all throughout the year, um, is around the concept of recognizing what you're good at and what you're not good at. And the sooner that you can have an honest conversation with yourself, honest conversation, not not downplaying yourself and not aggrandizing yourself, the sooner you're going to know what you need to do next. Because there's no one piece of advice I can tell you that will help your team run like my team runs. Uh, and there's no guarantee that tomorrow I won't screw up my whole team either uh, because the formula is delicate. But I know that the first and last thing I need to remember in a day is I am a person who has strengths and weaknesses, how did I either amplify or mitigate those today? And did I drop the ball somewhere? And then I just do a double check, check on the teammates. Sometimes I owe someone an apology. Sometimes I owe someone some praise. <laughs> Sometimes I deserve some praise too. Uh, but it always comes back to sort of that self-check-in, a uh, very mindful approach to what am I doing well and what am I not doing well right now? That is so powerful. I love that you said that. And actually, it brings me quite perfectly to asking people how they can find out more about you and get in touch. And um, if you could share your link for that executive detox, that would be awesome. I think I might sign up to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Anyone is welcome to sign up. You just have to go to dangerco.co. That's our website, dangerco.co. Uh, it's right at the top of the of the banner. You'll see executive detox. And I also have a blog on there. It's just called advice. And it's got a, a random mix of stuff, including excerpts from the detox program. But if you're anything like me, you do better with something scheduled that hits your inbox versus uh, trying to remember to go check on it. So, uh, and LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me. Jordan Danger Stalker is pretty easy to find. Not a lot of danger stalkers out there. So uh, feel free to connect and uh, chat with me anytime. And the whole point of the detox program and also like uh, on LinkedIn, anytime you want to connect with me is, you know, that that living candidly and transparently is uh, 100% my MO. So if you want to touch base, you want to just randomly tell me a story, something you're going through, like we can connect and talk anytime. Thank you so much. We will make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. So check out your podcast player or go to tonycollins.com and you can grab all those links and catch up with Jordan. If 
Thank you, Jordan, so much for coming and sharing your insights and how you lead your team with a people-first approach. This has been super powerful, and I hope that the audience have found it as fascinating as I have. I've certainly learned stuff, and I thought I was pretty down on this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Isn't Jordan fabulous? Oh, I had so much fun at recording that interview. If you enjoyed that as much as I did, make sure you go and follow Jordan over on LinkedIn. You can find her at Jordan Danger Stalker. Get that link in your show notes. Make sure you follow her. You can also find out about more of her work. If you so choose to work with her, go to dangerco.co. What a fabulous URL. (laughs) If you love this episode as much as I did, make sure you share it over on your favorite social media channel. And I would be ever so grateful if you would leave a rating and review over on iTunes. Until next time, remember, ladies, stay on your tech leadership game and follow your dreams because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, check out how to get more of my help and some free resources. It's where I take what I talk about in this podcast and really help you apply it. Hop on over to tonycollis.com and check out Work With Tony and free resources in the menu bar. Until next time, this was Tony Collis on the Leading Women in Tech podcast.